Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. When Iraq is back in the international news cycle, it's often a report about violence and instability. But not this past weekend. On March 5th, Pope Francis embarked on a historic visit to the war-ravaged country that is also the birthplace of the Abrahamic faiths. The Pope's itinerary included meetings between heads of state and religious leaders, as well as performing public mass. Remarkably, the journey included a trip to Najaf, a holy pilgrimage site for Shia Muslims. There was also a controversial meeting with Shia leader, the Grand Ayatollah al-Sistani. And this is the million-dollar question, how Pope Francis's trip and his meeting with the Grand Ayatollah um, who is this massive influential Muslim leader in the country, his meeting with him, the tone that he tried to set of peace and dialogue between Christians and Muslims and forgiveness and reconciliation. The country is in a state of euphoria. That's Colin Flynn, a reporter with the EWTN News Network. He is one of the members of the press who accompanied the Pope. We get to my conversation with Flynn a little later in the program. We begin this week with Gail Samak Lamon. Her new book, The Daughters of Kobani, released on February 16th, is already a New York Times bestseller. Lamon introduces readers to the Kurdish women who joined the YPG, the Women's Protection Unit. Women who believe that fighting ISIS is the key to building a new future of governance in the region that is multi-ethnic, multi-faith, and respects the rights of women. Lamon is drawn to the region. It is one that she's connected to personally. Her father was born and raised in Baghdad. In her first book, The Dressmaker of Kher Khanna, she follows the story of Afghan teenager Nabila Siddiqui, who finds a way to survive under the rule of the Taliban by secretly starting a sewing business in her living room. In 2015, her best-selling book, Ashley's War, takes us back to the Women's Soldiers Unit created to serve with the U.S. Special Command, part of the Obama administration's efforts to win, quote, hearts and minds. In each book, readers find maps, definitions of acronyms, and historical context, woven together skillfully, inviting readers into corners of the world most will never go, conflict zones. Her writing and the intimate details she offers betrays not only her in-depth research, but the connection and urgency she feels to bring these stories to the world. In fact, after finishing Ashley's War, Lamont made a decision to stop covering war, explaining in the opening pages of The Daughters of Kobani the toll it takes trying to make Americans care about faraway places and people that meant so much. But that decision didn't hold. She got a call from a source serving on the ground in Syria who relayed a story Lamont could not ignore. 
What changed for you, Gail? Why did you go back? I went back because The Daughters of Kobane was a story that once you heard it, you couldn't not tell. You couldn't not want to learn more. How did we not know them? And what in the world had happened? What series of events had happened that had really allowed the moment for one of the world's most far-reaching experiments in women's equality anywhere in the world to come to life right on the ashes of ISIS? And this experiment was created by women who had fought ISIS room by room, quite literally, house by house and town by town for a half decade. And I wanted to know who were these women? What had motivated them? What had brought them from young women living pretty ordinary lives into being catapulted onto the global stage by the United States and bringing their brand of politics, which had women's emancipation right at the heart of what it set out to do? And that was the story I set out to tell. How did this David versus Goliath story happen in this town of Kobane that so few had ever heard of? And how was David also a woman? ISIS hasn't been in the news of late. The focus in the United States, especially when we think of radicalization, when we think of trying to manifest an extreme vision of a religious idea and competing with this idea of religious pluralism, what has the experience been like in trying to bring attention to the story and to the book? It's been so moving because I think what people have found in The Daughters of Kobani is inspiration. Perhaps in the last place they expect to find it, mm. you know, in a story based in Syria about the fight against ISIS, having people just so moved, so motivated by their faith, by their focus on pluralism, by the fact that these were people who were not superheroes. They were ordinary people put into extraordinary circumstances by the moment who decided that they were going to stand up not just for themselves, but for all of us against the notions that the Islamic State wanted to put into practice. And there is something in this moment about watching women rewrite the rules that govern their lives that speaks to people. And the universality of that and the inspirational piece of going on that journey is, I think, what readers have responded to. And I'm so thankful the book is already number 13 on the New York Times bestseller list. And that is a testament to the people who dared to stand up to ISIS, to the women who said the world can look different, and to all these readers who've taken it so very personally and, and shared it, the story with others. It's an inspiring story that we almost need right now. I think resilience that people may find reading a story about a group of young women. You've changed the names for security reasons. For some of the U.S. side, but not for the Syrians. You raise such an interesting point. I, and I would say to them, you know, how do you feel about this? And they're like, well, we already fought ISIS. So, you know, it's okay if the U.S. knows who we are. And I think, you know, it's, it's funny, but not funny, right? Because you have to, I think the joy is what I want readers to define mm. to. The friendship and the humanity amid inhumanity of all of these women who trusted me with their story. You introduce us to the women of the YPG. Before we get into their stories, can you talk a little bit about how the ethnic identity of being Kurdish plays out in a region in which, frankly, everyone, for the most part, this is a Muslim-majority area. If you wouldn't mind, set the table for us about this region. Sure. So to think about this, if we rewind in time, Embreen, right, 2014 is a moment in which ISIS has not had one 
defeat. The Americans are deeply worried. The Europeans are deeply worried. The region is deeply worried about who is going to stop ISIS. The Kurds are an ethnic minority split across four countries, Turkey, Iraq, Syria, and Iran. And in Syria, it's a pretty small minority that has really not been able to exercise basic rights, right? Not been able to publish in its language, teach its children in its language, uh, you know, celebrate holidays. And what happens is the chaos of the Syrian civil war starts, starts as a peaceful democratic protest. And very quickly, the Assad regime cracks down and makes it clear it is going to answer any peaceful protest with unlimited violence. And so the Kurds are watching this all play out and they are watching this chaos created by the civil war as the Syrian regime fights to stay in power. And this group of Syrian Kurds decides they are going to take control of their own streets. So as the regime withdraws to deal with more existential threats, young people take up arms to, just to protect their neighborhoods, right? I mean, think about your town, right? If there is chaos, people are gonna organize, they're gonna get together, they're gonna figure out how to protect neighborhood watch kind of thing. And that's what they do. At this point, none of the women in this story ever think that they're going to go up against an ISIS or be uh, partnered with the Americans, right? And so what happens is the Syrian civil war metastasizes into a conflict that has extremism right at the heart of it. And the group that stands up to ISIS in this little town of Kobani at a time when no one has beaten ISIS is this group of Syrian Kurds that had previously organized just to take care of its own towns and to keep extremists out. And now the world catches wind of them as they watch them backed up into a couple streets in a little town of Kobani, but bringing the fight to ISIS. And the Americans who are hunting for Syria policy and trying to figure out who is going to be the partner on the ground willing to fight to the death against the Islamic State thinks maybe this could be our force. And right at the heart of that force of the People's Protection Units are the Women's Protection Units that had formed these all-women group of fighters that created its own Women's Protection Units in 2013. Mm. Just to be really clear here, I mean, there are Women's Protection Units, but these women eventually, as this story unfolds, as you're describing it, they're not like a segregated troop over here on the side. Yeah. I mean, they are also respected by their fellow soldiers. Well, and this is, that's where this book starts, is that uh, one of the uh, women who'd been in my second book, Ashley Swar, an American soldier in special operations, calls me and says, you have to come to Syria. You have to see what is happening here. There are women who are fighting against ISIS, and it's not just that they're fighting against ISIS. They're fighting for women's equality. And they have the full respect of the men alongside whom they serve and the men they lead in battle. And they have the deep respect of the Americans. And these were the Americans, you know, most elite and most tested uh, special operations forces. And, and I thought, oh my, you know, you couldn't hear that and not want to learn more. You introduced listeners to the women who you got to meet how did you develop relationships with them? How did you get these stories, Gail? Every great story starts with a question you cannot answer. And every reporting process is involved with two words, showing up over and over and over again. You sit for three or four hours in a room going over again and again and again. It's the same set of facts. Tell me where you were. What did you have for breakfast? What did it smell like? What did it look like? Can we look at pictures? Can I talk to your family? Can you know? And you go through that over and over again. 
And I think at the beginning, they thought it was a little bit curious that mm -hmm. I had so many obscure questions. And then by the end, they kept joking with me, Gail, when is this book going to come out? There's so many interviews and it's for so long. You know, you keep coming back and we keep asking you, when are we actually going to see this book? So it's been amazing to see young people in the region in Northeastern Syria be so excited about the book and also to know that it will be published there. That was the first uh, international agreement that we had about publication of this book is it will be published in Arabic and in Kurdish in Northeastern Syria. But really the reporting process is like it is for every detailed kind of storytelling like this, which is to keep sitting with people, keep showing up and go deeper and deeper and deeper into their worlds, which is a huge privilege. As you form these relationships with these women, was there one particular woman that really stands out for you? So many of the stories of the journey that they had before deciding to become a fighter that you introduce us to, there was a there was a common theme that I noticed, which had to do with wanting to be able to have agency over their decisions. Yes. Like, what will I be? Do I want to be a doctor? Do I... Do I want to marry my distant relative or do I want to marry the man I've fallen in love with? This idea of hungering and, and wanting to fight for this future was also rooted, it seemed, in a struggle that they were feeling before the crisis, before ISIS disrupted the political, social and economic life as they knew it. It is a mix of most definitely wanting to support their people, right? So the, the Kurdish question, I think, was at the center for all of them, right? Some had watched their family lose land. Others had watched as their family got embroiled in political conflicts that they didn't choose. And there was this whole notion of, as Nowruz, the head of the Women's Protection Unit said, we wanted our nieces and nephews to grow up in a world that looked different where they could have their liberties, they could have their freedoms, they could name their children what they wished. So that was one strand of it. And the second strand was absolutely about the hunt for dignity that we all feel. And I, I sort of have a moment in the prologue of the book where I was talking about my father being from the region. And we used to have many, many debates about women's equality because, you know, my father grew up in this world uh, in many ways. And had really struggled with the whole notion of women's equality and actually turned to me in a moment that's in the prologue and said to me one day, do you really think men and women are equal? <laughs> and he didn't mean it in a disrespectful way at all, which I hope readers understand. Like for him, it was the same as saying that there was a cheese eating cow that jumped up and down on the moon every night at 9 p.m., right? Like there was just, it was so removed from the world he had grown up in as to be truly radical. And so- I understood the journey in from a fraction of an inkling of a shard, right, that these women would have gone on. And I wanted readers to understand that it was completely the universal quest for dignity I have had the privilege of seeing in women and girls everywhere around the world. It is not unique to any one region or any one country. And in fact, it was so interesting because my mother-in-law said to me, Amber, you know, when I was a girl, there were three jobs women did. We were either teachers, uh, nurses or secretary. Everybody decided for us what our lives would look like. And that is what these women challenged. That notion that rules you had nothing to do with creating could govern and shape your future.
When we come back from this short break, I continue my conversation with Gail Samak-Limon. We turn from the past to the present. As a senior adjunct faculty at the Council on Foreign Relations, Lamont outlines what she would like to see from the Biden administration in the region and the significance of the Pope's recent trip. Visiting the birthplace of Abraham and meeting with influential religious leaders like the Grand Ayatollah al-Sistani in the historic city of Najaf. You are listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. If you joined late, you can hear or stream the full episode on our website at interfaithradio.org. And while you're there, you can subscribe to our podcast. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you are just joining, my guest this week is best-selling author and journalist Gail Samak Lemon. Her new book, The Daughters of Kobani, introduces readers to the Kurdish women who joined the Women's Protection Unit to fight ISIS and to fight for their future. The Kurdish women's militia organized to protect their communities as the civil war in Syria raged, and as the extremist movement known as Daesh or ISIS began terrorizing and occupying villages, kidnapping and torturing women. The book takes readers back to 2014, up to the defeat of ISIS in Raqqa. Lemon introduces readers to the different women commanders in the YPG, alongside the larger narrative of events unfolding both in the United States and in the region, from the geopolitical dynamics to the competing ideologies. Lamont's research for the book included seven trips and hundreds of hours of interviews in northeastern Syria, northern Iraq, and the United States. What becomes clear is the women fighting want to defeat ISIS, and they want to secure a new future. Let's get back to my conversation. 
did the experience of fighting ISIS, of fighting on the ground, how did that change them? Nowhere in the world have I seen women more comfortable with power and less apologetic about being in charge. And it comes both from their ideology and from military gains. There is the sense that they have lost so much. They have given so much to stop the Islamic State, to fight for the world, these extremists, that they understand that cost better than anybody else. They understand the price of that, and they understand what that gives them. They understand the gains came with sacrifice. And that sacrifice is, I think, in many ways, what gives them that confidence that we earned this and no one will take this from us. And I think that is what is so fascinating to see because the military piece was only a means to an end for the political piece for this group of women. As Nauruz, the head of the Women's Protection Unit, said to me, if we could lead in war, no one could say we couldn't govern in peace. Mm. And they are not waiting for anybody to agree that now is the time for women's rights. Their founding compact, their documents say, have women mentioned 13 times. Yes to girls' education, no to child marriage, no to dowry. Um, you know, Women have economic rights. Women have full rights recognized by this. You know, women's, uh, Women-led courts to decide issues that are based around family. You know, all of this is cooked into the political structures that they have built and that have been part of every town they've taken from ISIS. Are you referring specifically to the democratic federal system, the constitution that they created for that? Of northeastern Syria, that's right. There is this political compact that's now run by the Syrian Democratic Council, which is a multi-ethnic, multi-faith uh, organization uh, that is governing the areas that have been taken from ISIS and that are led by this group of Syrian Kurds and Arabs and Christians who have been fighting ISIS as part of the SDF, America's partner on the ground in the ISIS fight, which lost 10,000 young people in the fight against ISIS. And this coalition that includes Arabs, Turkmens, Yazidi, Assyrians, Syriac, Christians, and Kurds, it's multi-ethnic, it's multi-faith. That's correct. Is it sustaining? Fast forward through the Trump administration, Brett McGurk resigns in protest. He was the special envoy in the fight against ISIS. He resigns publicly, condemns the Trump administration's policies for withdrawing support and forces for our allies on the ground. Where are we today in 2021, Gail? So the book actually ends in December of 2019, and I went into northeastern Syria weeks after the Turkish-backed incursion. And I have to say, what struck me most was that hope continues to flow, and that the structures, the governance structures, which I thought would be gone, remained very much in place. And it is a testament to the enduring nature of uh, people on the ground owning their own governance. It is imperfect, but it endures. And they're working to make it better. And it is unlike anything we've seen in the post 9-11 conflicts, because you never see the Americans. There was never a large deployment of U.S. ground forces. In fact, the whole book is really about the, you know, the second storyline is the Americans really a very light footprint on the ground and air power. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the people who are going town by town, you know, and, and there's a moment in Membage where actually an older woman comes out and puts her hand on the face of one of the women 
who says, you know, come out, everything's okay. And, and says, we didn't know you were real. Yeah. That's what I wanted to show that this continues to endure, even I think well beyond my expectations of, of that, the fact that it could. I shared with you before we started this conversation that I went to Northern Iraq and met an artist who told me about this force of women. And I saw him constructing a memorial to them. And and I will tell you, there was a part of me that was like, is this real? Or is this like a mythical Kurdish story of women warrior fighters? And in fact, here you are bringing us the stories. I had the same reaction when I heard the story that there were these women there. I thought, you know, is this real? Who are these people? Why are they doing this? And that is the entire book. <laughs> the Daughters of Kobani is taking readers on that journey from, you know, is this mythical to, oh, no, these are very real people with deep humanity who are also sisters and daughters and friends. You know, there's a moment where their family, you know, Rosha in the middle of the battle for Kobani, her mother is calling. And those of you who come from more traditional cultures, you know, if your parent calls you, there's no point in avoiding the call, right? If they don't, if you don't pick up, they're going to call your sister or they're going to call your aunt, they're going to call somebody, right? And so she ends up picking up the phone in the middle of the battle and just holding it up so her mother can hear the bullets going by. And her mother starts wailing and crying so loudly that everybody's hearing it. And then she's like, oh gosh, you know, that was kind of a mistake, but I had no choice because otherwise she'd think that, uh, you know, that I was dead. And, and that was true, right? I mean, this was playing out in real time on people's phones, on WhatsApp, on Facebook. And I wanted people to come in and say, no, these are real human beings. But the closest we've gotten to seeing them mm-hmm. in real life previously was in superhero films or, or, or Thor Ragnarok, the Valkyrie. These women themselves, what was their relationship to their faith? What was their relationship to their identity? Did they identify as Muslim? You know, I think it would depend on who you talk to. Some of them were atheists. Some of them were Muslim. Uh, Many came from very traditional families who continued to practice their faith. There were also young women from the Christian community. And I spent time with one of the young women from the Christian community. And I said, what did you think the first time you met an ISIS fighter? And she looked at me, Amber, and as if I'd asked the dumbest question imaginable, which actually it was. And she looked at me and said, what did I think? I thought I wanted to kill it. He came to my neighborhood to find me, and my job was to stop that. And she had a very deep sense that she was protecting her embattled community. ISIS had kidnapped 550-plus Christians from the Khabur Valley and negotiated for their release. I mean, it was truly horrific. Uh, So I think faith was a theme that ran through the story, but in all kinds of different ways. And the biggest thing was, we want to create a multi-ethnic, multi-faith place that looks different from all of the places around us. What is the biggest challenge that you see the Biden administration facing? So the ghost of the Iraq war hung over every decision made in Syria across three administrations now. Uh, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and now the Biden administration. And many of the people who were part of creating the policy in 2014 are now back in government. Uh, In fact, Secretary of State Tony Blinken is in the book. Brett McGurk is in the book, right? There are a number of people who are going to be shaping U.S. policy, whose decisions have really led us to where we are. The important point for me is this is about America's national security. This is about a buy with and through or a partner force, right, that did everything the world asked of it. And it continues to hold thousands of Islamic State fighters who no one else will take back. Its own countries will not take them back. And I want the humanity and 
the multiple dimensions of who they are to show through because when we otherize people, it makes it much easier to not see the toll of what we've asked as the world has gone forward. And I think this is really a decision that's coming up right ahead for the Biden administration. How do you continue to keep the pressure on ISIS? President Biden said 10 days ago that we are going to, as the United States, continue supporting Iraq in its fight against extremism. Well, that also requires keeping the pressure on ISIS, both in northern Iraq and in Syria. So I think these are all real-time decisions to see this fight as connected to the broader fight against extremism and that you do not want large numbers of U.S. ground forces to have to go back in. So you support the partner that has been sacrificing for the U.S., for Europe, for the world. And, and I think that is also using diplomatic muscle to get all parties to the table and say, here is what the future of Syria is going to look like. And this is not the U.S. alone, but this is the U.S. as part of really exercising leadership in the region so that um, threats to the United States don't continue to surface and the U.S. Uh, helps to lead to a more secure, more stable Syria and more secure, more stable region. And I do think that that is possible. I believe deeply in U.S. diplomatic efforts as able to create a world in which more people have more of a say in more of their lives. And how much of a, a priority should the rights of women be in the negotiations and in the tables in which we are setting the terms of negotiating? Here is the issue. We have for so long seen women's involvement as a nice to have rather than a national security priority. And if we can do one thing with these stories, it's to show that women are America's allies in the fight against extremism and in the fight for a more stable, more secure, more prosperous future. I'm talking about the women who are the moms, the sisters, the daughters who are fighting every single day with the values that we know, values we recognize, who are our allies in the fight for a world that looks brighter than it did yesterday. And it is not about a handout. It is about holding hands with people who are already leading in their communities and giving them a bullhorn. Do you think there's enough of an understanding of the role that faith plays in negotiating peace? There is recognition now, I think even more than there was 10 years ago, about the importance of faith-based communities, about the importance of pluralism. In, even inside each one of those communities, right? Uh, I do think that that is changing. I don't know that I think it's changing quickly, but I do think people are really coming to contend with the fact that people across all kinds of faith backgrounds, even if they don't agree on politics, can agree on issues and can get behind supporting communities that need our attention, need our support. And I do think that there is more that brings us together than divides us. I want to ask you about the Pope's visit to Iraq. What, what was your take on the kind of religious authority or the leadership that the Pope was um, seeking to kind of convey? The most moving part to me is seeing him talk about faith and talk about multi-faith uh, coexistence in the same place where Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi had really talked about the Islamic State reaching all the way to Rome mm. in a very different view of what religion would bring to the world. And watching young people, young Iraqis of all faiths, really stand up, you know, people who had put their lives on the line during the ISIS rule, and who had been working to bring different churches back to life, who had been working alongside folks of different faiths. That to me was a moment that said, 
The future can look different from the past and the future is already here because you, young Iraqis, older Iraqis, have been fighting for it every day. Gail samak is an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and now the best-selling author of three books, The Daughters of Kobani, Ashley's War, and The Dressmaker of Kher Khanna. If you enjoyed this conversation, I want to invite you to read the book and then join me for our next live virtual book club meeting via Zoom on Thursday, April 8th at 7.30 p.m. Just RSVP to Lila at interfaithradio.org. That's L-I-L-A at interfaithradio.org. We'll be talking about the women featured in the book, and I'll be sharing a slideshow of pictures I captured while visiting the region during a reporting trip in 2015. Iraq is a special place to me. And this week, it was back in the news as Pope Francis made a historic three-day visit that began March 5th. After the break, my conversation with EWTN reporter Colm Flynn, who accompanied the Pope across Iraq. We spoke just a few hours after he landed in Rome. He shares observations on the message and the potential impact of the historic trip. That's coming up. Stay with us. On the first weekend in March, Pope Francis made a historic trip to Iraq. The visit drew criticism for its apparent disregard for health concerns tied to COVID-19. Francis has been repeatedly called out for not wearing a mask. And according to the Religion News Service, he told journalists on Monday that he, quote, truly felt in prison during the lockdown. In conversations with reporters, the Pope defended his trip, maintaining that he felt a source of inspiration, divine inspiration, to bring light to the religious persecution that so many had suffered at the hands of ISIS, not just Christians. The Pope told reporters he felt the need after reading the Nobel Peace Prize winner Nadia Murad's book, The Last Girl, detailing the ISIS attacks on the Yazidi community and the attacks on women. On his last day in Iraq, the day before International Women's Day, the Pope called for respect and greater opportunities for women. Some conservative voices in the church criticized the Pope for meeting with the Grand Ayatollah al-Sistani in the city of Najaf. The Pope defended this meeting as consistent with church teachings to promote coexistence in accordance with the Second Vatican Council. To get a better understanding of what the experience was like and the criticisms, I spoke with EWTN broadcast reporter Colm Flynn just a few hours after he landed from his three-day whirlwind trip with the Pope. I understand you just landed a few hours ago in Rome. You accompanied the Pope on this historic trip. How are you feeling, sir? I am feeling, you know what, I'm still running on the energy, the excitement, the anxiety as well, and just the sheer amount of love that I felt in Iraq. For the last four days, I have been in Iraq, and we had a wake-up call at 3 a.m. every morning, including this morning, we had to get up to get on the papal plane, 
fly back to Rome and I've just arrived back in the Eternal City. So I'm, I'm a bit tired, but I'm, I'm happy to be here talking to you today. Well, I appreciate it. And I can hear that excitement still in your voice. So first impressions, you, you acknowledge that you were there was some the hesitation, there were fears and some concerns about this trip happening now. What did you encounter? What did you find when you landed? Yes, you're right. When they asked me, my bosses at EWTN, which is the Global Catholic Television Network, they said, Cullen, we want you to go on the apostolic trip with Pope Francis to Iraq. And I thought, great, I'm going to Iraq. And then I went home and I uh, sobered up a bit and thought about it. And I thought, oh, wait, this is terrible. I'm going to Iraq because like so many people I know and my family, what I had known of Iraq were the images I'd seen on TV over the years, which was war, destruction, devastation, sorrow, pain, machine guns. And I thought this is going to be some sort of barbaric country I'm going to. This isn't going to be safe uh, with COVID-19 as well. Then leading up to the trip, we had there was a number of rocket attacks uh, in, in Baghdad in January. There were two suicide bombers in different parts of the country only, I think, two weeks ago. So right up to this trip, there were bombings in different parts of the country. And people were advising the Pope not to travel. But he said, no, I am still going. I think some journalists then backed out and they um, declined to go. But I I went and when I touched down, I was really just blown away. It was completely different to what I thought. Visually, when we were driving around in our uh, massive um, motorcade that we had, you could see all along the streets, they took no chances. They had the Iraqi military out in force. They had the Iraqi Secret Service and police standing along the road whenever we were traveling. They were holding their machine guns. They had what looked like tanks. So it it was quite intimidating from one point of view. But then when you would meet the people, when you would go up and talk to the soldiers holding the machine guns, you realized... Uh, how much you had in common they they loved that they were hosting pope francis and they had journalists there from all over the world and you know what i noticed as well they really had a sense of the spotlight being on iraq uh, for the first time in a while and for a different reason than normal Mm. and they were really enjoying it they were relishing in it i just i'm curious did you feel like you got enough time to actually meet folks outside of the entourage no, not at all. In Baghdad, we, were, we weren't allowed out of the hotel. Our mm. hotel was surrounded by this kind of concrete fence. They had erected huge security. Uh, they had snipers on the roof. I mean, it was really full on. So we were told you can't leave the hotel. But it was very heavily stage managed by the Iraqi government. They left nothing to chance. But in, in Karakwash, he went to visit the largest Christian community there in a church called the Immaculate Conception. And that's a smaller city. And when we went there, the security was a little bit more lax. During the um, service, Pope Francis was speaking inside the church. He was actually listening to testimonies from families who had lost uh, sons and daughters and brothers and sisters in ISIS attacks. And halfway through it, I kind of slipped out a side door. And it was remarkable. I found uh, the Pope's car was there. This beautiful Mercedes the Iraqi government had uh, provided for the trip. And there was loads of security and army men around it. And I froze and I thought, I'm going to get in trouble here because I'm not meant to be here. But one of them came over and he had a little tray and he gestured uh, at me to take a cup of tea off the tray. (laughs) 
And I was like, wow. And just the barrier broke down again. Mm. You know, when I saw their image, it went back to what I'd seen on TV. I'm in danger. This isn't safe. And then a moment later, I was talking with them. Uh, the little bit we could communicate, we were joking. There were little kids playing around. And that was probably the nicest moment for me. And then this woman come up to me holding her baby. And again, so proud to be in front of the camera. I was holding my camera phone and I started doing a Facebook Live. And she had taught her little boy to say, uh, we love you, Pope. I love you. I love you. And these were Muslims yeah. uh, outside of the church. And when we went to the birthplace of Abraham, that was um, extraordinary because this is where the three main monotheistic religions, Christianity and Judaism and Islam, all began. And I was interviewing this um, girl, but she looked very secular. Uh, or She looked very Western. She was young. She was Iraqi. She was educated. She was from Baghdad. And I assumed she was Christian. And we were talking. And then halfway through it, she said, you know, because I'm, I'm Muslim. And she said, isn't it amazing that you're Christian, I'm Muslim, and we're both standing here on the very spot where our religions began all those years ago. Mm, it sounds like it's going to stay with you for a while. It's so extraordinary. When you leave these places, you feel a bit cheated because it leaves such a beautiful impression on you. And all the Iraqi people I met were incredibly welcoming. And one thing I learned they say over there is Iraq is your second home, your second country. Um, they love the fact that they were hosting us and they would love to see the world to see their country in a new light. And you wonder, will I be back? And I'd love to see, and this is the million dollar question, how Pope Francis's trip and his meeting with the Grand Ayatollah, um, who is this massive influential Muslim leader in the country, his meeting with him, the tone that he tried to set of peace and dialogue between Christians and Muslims and forgiveness and reconciliation... I mean, there's, the, the country is in a state of euphoria at the moment. You can really sense that. But how long will it last and what will the long-term effect be on the country? That, I think, is the question that so many are asking because it was clear, at least to us watching the events unfold uh, here from the United States, that this was both a religious trip, one that was to be um, you know, imbued with the symbolism and the rituals and the practices that are sacred, uh, particularly in the season of Lent. But the Pope is also the head of state, and he has been unequivocating in speaking out and trying to address issues related to coexistence, issues related to peace. And it is also at a time in which the kind of relationship between the Shia and the Sunni, particularly in Iraq, and the dynamic in that region with Iran and with Syria, there are a lot of diplomatic and political um, layers to bringing this kind of attention. Did you feel that that diplomacy was part of the mission? It, how much energy and effort was intended to exercise what some call that soft power that religious leaders can have in a political context. I think you nailed the argument on the head. There was much criticism of the Holy Father before he left the Eternal City and flew on his Alitalia papal flight to Baghdad. Why is he going? Why now? We're in the middle of COVID. The Christians in Iraq that he has been saying for so long that he so desperately wants to be with and see, you know, most of them weren't able to uh, see him. 18,000 were able to gather in the stadium at Erbil for the last day for a huge mass. 
But for most of the time, it was meeting the prime minister, it was meeting the president, it was meeting the uh, president of Kurdistan. So it was a very political journey. That being said, I think, you know, the seeds that he planted, really, you have to think when you see the scenes are going to have a long lasting positive effect. But it's a delicate tightrope that he's walking. And one of the head church officials, Cardinal uh, Filoni, I asked him about it too. I said, is this the right time? He said, right time. When is the right time? This is a real time. I was there in 2015 in northern Iraq. And at that time, the dynamic was less on the multi-faith, but the intra-faith tensions as ISIS was destroying cities, displacing neighborhoods, um, you know, terrorizing faith communities and also terrorizing Muslims who refused to follow and and embrace the extremism uh, that they were advocating. And so the role of uh, the Grand Ayatollah uh, Ali Asistani from Najaf, you know, that meeting that happened there, which is in this third holiest pilgrimage site, the fact that he took that meeting in itself is also signaling. It's signaling to the, the Shias the relationship and the importance of creating that table to talk about and affirm that coexistence. And I'm curious if you found or heard kind of criticisms from within and among local Iraqis. You know what? It's so complicated because the meeting was a private meeting. When the Pope went to meet al-Sistani in his humble home they didn't have this in some kind of elaborate palace. He went to his home and met him that a uh, Al-Sistani stood up to meet the Pope and they told us this is the first time he has ever stood up to greet a guest when he's walked into the room and they told us the Pope took off his shoes. Again, everything was off the record in the meeting. It wasn't recorded and no journalists were permitted when they met for 45 minutes. But afterwards, um, the Pope did say, and he mentioned it on the papal flight this morning when he had his press conference, that he said to Pope Francis that he believed all Christians in Iraq should be able to live in peace. And he said that they should have the, he agreed with Pope Francis that they should have the same rights as all other citizens. Now, that was a huge thing for him to say. The signaling that Sistani is doing by meeting with the Pope, did Sistani release a readout from that meeting suggesting the same thing or confirming it? No, not that we know of or not that we were given. Mm. Our communication was coming straight from the Vatican press office, so everything we got came from them and... There was no statement we were given from Al-Sistani when we were there, not at all. You know, I think it's so interesting to have this happen also during the pandemic. It, it makes one wonder just the urgency, again, of the geopolitical realities that the Pope is reading. I wonder how much significance should we be looking at in terms of the way the Biden administration is trying to renegotiate and reengage in the region? Because today, the Biden administration put out uh, an executive statement uh, from the president commending the pope on this trip and affirming all of the messages that came out of his meeting with uh, the Grand Ayatollah and the multi-faith coexistence fraternal message of, of working together for peace. It does raise some questions about who the audience was for this, but also how this visit could potentially lead to other decisions by political actors that have a stake in the region. And that was something that was leveled uh, to the Pope as well on the plane today. Why now again? Why was this the time to go, particularly in light of COVID 
and Iraq, I think, has just been in the grip of a, a COVID um, sore in the last couple of weeks and last couple of months. And at Herbal Stadium, they had up to 18,000 people and very few were wearing masks. I saw that. Yeah, I saw, I saw that. I'm, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I was going to say I went online to look at the stadium. Someone panned around and I saw a few surgical masks, but not many at all. But you know what? It's See, you have to weigh it up, I think. And that's what the Pope said in his answer on the plane. He said, you know what? I, I thought about it long and hard. He said, I prayed a lot about it. We know the risks. And yes, there are risks. I accept there are risks. He was asked actually a very direct question on the plane, which was uh, very unlike a papal press conference. Someone asked him, uh, do you, you know, there could be people who get very ill. There could be debts because of your visit. What do you, how do you respond all the journalists kind of stopped and paid attention. But he said he waited up, he prayed a lot about it, and on balance he said he, he thought the good that com- could come out of this trip would just far outweigh and outseed anything else. And you know what, from being there, again, I don't know the numbers, I don't know how many people are going to get COVID or how it's going to transmit, I don't know that. But you could just tell, you could feel the seeds of helium were starting to grow Uh, You really could sense this kind of joy and euphoria in the air that I think the Iraqi people were so longing for. And the Pope's visit there, was it somewhat political? Of course it was. Um, But has it done a great thing for the Christian community there? Absolutely. For the country in general. Um, As a person who was only there as an observer for three days, I think so. Mm. But time will tell. Time will tell. And it sounds like you are headed back there at some point to tell some stories. And you know what, just as you mentioned that, uh, I'm looking at a monitor here in front of me. I know people can't see this because we're on radio, but it's a video of my cameraman, Alexi, who was filming with me for the couple of days. And uh, this morning in the bus on the way from our hotel in Baghdad to the airport, he was sitting at the very front beside the bus driver. The bus driver could speak very little English. My cameraman can speak very little Arabic. And they were just communicating. And my cameraman admired his ring. It's that a beautiful ring. And they were chatting for a while. And then at the end, the bus driver took off his ring. It has this kind of beautiful red rock in the middle of it. And I started filming straight away. And he said, please take this. Please take this. Now, my cameraman was so embarrassed, Alexi, and he kept refusing. But he took it off his hand and put it into my cameraman's hand, the ring, and and kept saying, please, it's a gift. It's a gift. Thank you, Ali, but I can't. That's too kind. No way. (laughs) You can't take that. (laughs) It's a beautiful ring. It's a beautiful ring. No, 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 Ali. It's too beautiful. It's too beautiful. And I thought, wow, that just sums up the, the, the Iraqi people and what our trip was like for the three days. My cameraman gave the ring back for the record, but we were very grateful. You know, that that's a beautiful story, Colm, and I thank you for sharing it. I You'll have to send me a little clip, and we'll definitely share it in the show notes. I think that that story in so many ways animates, I think, that human spirit of connection and excitement. And I, and I know that there is going to be a lot of unpacking of this papal trip. I so appreciate you taking time to share your observations. All the best. Thank you so much. Colin Flynn is a broadcast journalist reporting for the EWTN Catholic News Agency. He is based in Rome and accompanied Pope Francis on this historic trip to Iraq. To see the videos and images from his trip, visit our show notes at interfaithradio.org. That's all for this week's episode. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. This week's producer is Kevin McCarthy. I hope wherever you are, You are safe, you stay connected, and we'll see you next week. 
I'm Umbreen Khan.